Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, mesdames et messieurs. It is Sunday, the fifth day of July in the year 2020. Happy Fourth of July weekend, everyone. Uh, you're now listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio. I'm your hostess, Sandra London of LivingGrind.com, broadcasting for you live from the sunny beaches of Southern California. Playtime with Sandra is available to you via Blog Talk Radio, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, digital, digital podcast. New Groove and Rhythms, and livinggrind.com. The song you just heard at the top of the hour is called Memory, and it's by Kyle. And this evening, I'll be playing for you chapter a few chapters from uh, The Strange Case, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by Robert Louis Stevenson. 
And here you are. Enjoy. It is Tuesday, the 12th day of May in the year 2015 at 1.42 a.m. And I am going to do a reading of one chapter of Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by Robert Louis Stevenson of Scotland and published in the U.S. in 1886 in the month of January. The first chapter is Story of the Door. Recording for you now, live by Sandra London. Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of a rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile, cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings and when the wine was to his taste, something eminently human beaconed from his eye something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in these silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the act of his life. He was austere with himself, drank gin when he was alone, to mortify a taste for vintages. And though he enjoyed the theater, he had not crossed the doors of one for 20 years. But he had an approved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering, almost with envy, at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds and in any extremity inclined to help rather than to reprove. I inclined to Cain's heresy, he used to say quaintly. I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. In this character, it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance and the last good influence in the lives of downgoing men. And to such as these, so long as they came about his chambers, he never marked a shade of change in his demeanor. No doubt the feat was easy to Mr. Utterson, for he was undemonstrative at the best, and even his friendship seemed to be founded in a similar capacity of good nature. It is the mark of a modest man to accept his friendly circle ready-made from the hands of opportunity. And that was the lawyer's way. His friends were those of his own blood or those whom he had known the longest. His affections, like ivy, were the growth of time. They implied no aptness in the object. Hence, no doubt the bond that united him to Mr. Richard Enfield his distant kinsman, the well-known man about town. It was a nut to crack for many what these two could see in each other or what subject they could find in common. It was reported by those who encountered them in their Sunday walks, but they said nothing, looked singularly dull, and would hail with obvious relief the appearance of a friend. For all that, the two men put the greatest store by these excursions counted them the chief jewel of each week, and not only set aside occasions of pleasure, but even resisted the calls of business, that they might enjoy them uninterrupted. It chanced on one of these rambles that their way led them down a by street in a busy quarter of London. The street was small and what is called quiet, but it drove a thriving trade on the weekdays. The inhabitants were all doing well. It seemed and all emulously hoping to do better still, and laying out the surplus of their grains and coquetry. So the shop front stood along that thoroughfare with an air of invitation, like rows of smiling saleswomen. Even on Sunday, when it veiled its more florid charms and lay comparatively empty of passage, the street shone out in contrast to its dingy neighborhood, like a fire in a forest and with its freshly painted shutters, well-polished brasses, and general cleanliness and gaiety of note, 
instantly caught and pleased the eye of the passenger. Two doors from one corner on the left hand going east, the line was broken by the entry of the court. And just at that point, a certain sinister block of building thrust forward its cable on the street. It was two stories high, showed no window, nothing but a door on the lower story and a blind forehead of discolored wall on the upper. It bore in every feature the marks of prolonged and sordid negligence. The door, which was equipped with neither bell nor knocker, was blistered and disdained. Tramps slouched into the recess and struck matches on the panels. Children kept shot upon the steps. The schoolboy had tried his knife on the moldings, and for close on a generation, no one had appeared to drive away these random visitors or to repair their ravages. Mr. Enfield and the lawyer were on the other side of the by street, but when they came abreast of the entry, the former lifted up his cane and pointed. Did you ever remark that door? he asked, and when his companion had replied in the affirmative, it is connected in my mind, added he, with a very old story. Indeed, said Mr. Utterson, with a slight change of voice. And what was that? Well, it was this way, returned Mr. Enfield. I was coming home from some place at the end of the world about three o'clock of a black winter morning, and my way lay through a part of town where there was literally nothing to be seen but lamps. Street after street, and all the folks asleep. Street after street, all lighted up as if for a procession, and all as empty as a church. Until at last I got into that state of mind when a man listens and listens and begins to long for the sight of a policeman. All at once I saw two figures. One, a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other, a girl, of maybe eight or ten, who was running as hard as she was able down a cross street. Well, the, the two ran into one another, naturally enough, at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing. So the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to hear, but it was hellish to see. It wasn't like a man. It was like some damn juggernaut. I gave a few hello to my heels, collared my gentleman, and brought him back to where there was already quite a group about persuading the screaming child. He was perfectly cool and made no resistance, but gave me one look so ugly that it brought out the sweat on me like running. The people who it turned out were the girl's own family, and pretty soon the doctor, for whom she had been sent, put in his appearance. Well, the child was not much the worse, more frightened, according to the sawbones, and there you might have supposed would be an end to it. But there was one curious circumstance. I had taken a loathing to my gentleman at first sight. So had the child's family, which is only natural. The the doctor's case was what struck me. He was the usual cut and dry apothecary, of no particular age and colour, with a strong Edinburgh accent, and about as emotional as a bagpipe. Well, sir, he was like the rest of us. Every time he looked at my prisoner, I saw that sawbones turned sick and white with desire to kill him. I knew what was in his mind, just as he knew what was in mine, and killing being out of the question, we did the next best, because the man we called and would make such a scandal to this. I should make his name stink from one end of London to the other. If he had any friends or any credit, we undertook that he should lose them. And all the time, as we were pitching it in Red Hot, we were keeping the women off him as best we could, for there was wild heartbeats. I never saw a circle of such hateful faces. And there was the man in the middle, with a kind of black, sneering coolness. Frightened too, I could see that. But carrying it off, sir, really like Satan. If you choose to make capital out of this accident, said he, I am naturally helpless. No gentleman but wishes to avoid a scene, says he. Name your figure. Well, we screwed him up to a hundred pounds for the child's family. It was clearly like to stick out, but 
there was something about the lovers that meant mischief, and at last he struck. The next thing was to get the money, and where do you think he carried us? But to that place with the door, whipped out a key, went in, and presently came back with a matter of ten pounds in gold and a cheque for the balance on coupe drawn a payable to bear and signed with a name that I can't mention, though it's one of the points in my story, but it was a name at least very well known and often printed. The figure was stiff, but the signature was good for more than that if it was only genuine. I took the liberty of pointing out to my gentleman that the whole business looked apocryphal, that a man does not in real life, or walk into a cellar door at four in the morning and come out with another man's check for close up on a hundred pounds. But he was quite easy and sneering. Set your mind at rest, says he. I will stay with you till the banks open and cash the check myself. So we all set off the doctor, the doctor and the top folder, and our friend and myself, and passed the rest of the night in my chambers. And next day, and we had breakfasted and went in about in a body to the bank. I gave him the check myself and said I had every reason to believe it was a forgery. Not a bit of it. The check was genuine. Put put, said Mr. Ederson. I see you feel as I do, said Mr. Enfield. Yes, it's a bad story. But my man was a fellow that nobody could have to do with. A really damnable man. And the person that drew the check is the very take of the proprieties celebrated to, and what makes it worse, one of your fellows who do what they call good. Jack Mayle, I suppose, an honest man, paying to the nose for some of the capers of his youth. Jack Mellows is what I call the face with the door in consequence, though even that, you know, is far from explaining all. He added, and with the words fell into a vein of musing. From this, he was recalled by Mr. Ederson, asking rather suddenly, And yet, knows the drawer of the check lives there? A likely place, isn't it? returned Mr. Enfield. But I have noticed his address. Uh, he lives in some square or other. And you never asked about the place with the door, said Mr. Ederson. No, sir, I had a delicacy, was the reply. I feel very strongly about putting questions. It partakes too much of the style of the day of judgment. You start a question, and it's like starting a stone. You sit quietly on the top of a hill, and the way the stone goes, starting others, and presently some bland old bird, the latter of thought is knocked on the head in his own back garden, and the family have to change the name. No, sir, I make it a rule of mine. The more it looks like Queer Street, the less I ask. A very good rule, too, said the lawyer. But he studied the place for himself, continued Mr. Enfield. It seems scarcely a house. There's no other door, and nobody goes in or out of that one, but once in a great while, the gentleman of my venture. There are three windows looking out on the court on the first floor, none below. The windows are always shut, but they're clean. And then there's a chimney, which is generally smoking, so somebody must live there. And yet it's not so sure, for the buildings are so packed together at the court that it's hard to say where one ends and another begins. The pair walked down again for a while in silence, and then, Enfield, said Mr. Ederson, that's a good rule of yours. Yes. I think it is, returned Enfield. But for all that, continued the lawyer, there's one point I want to ask. I want to ask the name of that man who walked over the child. Well, said Mr. Enfield, I can't see what harm it would do. It was a man of the name of Hyde. Hmm, said Mr. Ederson. What sort of a man is he to see? He is not easy to describe. There's something wrong with his appearance, something displeasing, something downright detestable. I never saw a man I so disliked, and yet I scarce know why. He must be deformed somewhere. He has a strong feeling of deformity, 
although I couldn't specify the point. He is an extraordinary looking man, and yet I really can name nothing out of the way. No, sir, I can make no hand of it. I can't describe him. And it's not want of memory, for I declare I can see him this moment. Mr. Ederson again walks away in silence, and obviously under a weight of consideration. You're sure he is the king? He inquired at last. My dear sir, began Enfield, surprised out of himself. Yes, I know, said Ederson. I know it must seem strange. The fact is, if I do not ask you the name of the other party, it is because I know it already. You see, Richard, your tale has gone home. If you have been inexact in any point, you had better correct it. I think you might have warned me, returned the other with a touch of sullenness. But I have been pedantically exact, as you call it. The fellow had a case, and what's more, he has it still. I saw him even not a week ago. Mr. Ederson sighed deeply, but said never a word, and the young man presently resumed. Here's another lesson to say nothing, said he. I am ashamed of my long tongue. Let us make a bargain never to refer to this again. With all my heart, said the lawyer, I shake hands on that, Richard. Can 
Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 2, Search for Mr. Hyde. Recorded by Sandra London of livinggrind.com. That evening, Mr. Ederson came home to his bachelor house in somber spirits and sat down to dinner without relish. It was his custom of a Sunday, when this meal was over, to sit close by the fire, a volume of some dry divinity on his reading desk, until the clock of the neighboring church rang out the hour of twelve, when he would go soberly and gratefully to bed. On this night, however, as soon as the cloth was taken away, he took up a candle and went into his business room. There he opened his safe, took from the most private part of it a document endorsed on the envelope, on the envelope as Dr. Jekyll's will and sat down with a clouded brow to study its contents. The will was holograph for Mr. Utterson, though he took charge of it now that it was made, had refused to lend the least assistance in the making of it. It provided not only that, in case of the decease of Henry Jekyll, MD, DCL, LLD, FRS, etc., all his possessions were to pass into the hands of his friend and benefactor, Edward Hyde. But that in case of Dr. Jekyll's disappearance or unexplained absence for any period exceeding three calendar months, the said Edward Hyde should step into the said Henry Jekyll's shoes without further delay and free from any burden or obligation beyond the payment of a few small sums to the members of the doctor's household. This document had long been the lawyer's eyesore. It offended him, both as a lawyer and as a lover of the sane and customary sides of life, to whom the fanciful was the immodest. And hitherto, it was his ignorance of Mr. Hyde that had swelled his indignation. Now, by a sudden turn, it was his knowledge. It was already bad enough when the name was but a name of which he could learn no more. It was worse when it began to be clothed upon with detestable attributes, and out of the shifting, insubstantial mists that had so long baffled his eye, there leaped up the sudden, definite presentment of a fiend. I thought it was madness, he said, as he replaced the obnoxious paper in the face, and now I began to say it is disgrace. With that, he blew out his candle, put on a great coat, and set forth in the direction of Cavendish Square, that citadel of medicine, where his friend, the great Dr. Lanyon, had his house and received his crowding patients. If anyone knows, it will be Lanyon, he had thought. The solemn butler knew and welcomed him. He was subjected to no stage of delay, but ushered direct from the door to the dining room where Dr. Lanyon sat alone over his wine. This was a hearty, healthy, dapper, red-faced gentleman with a shock of hair, prematurely white, and a boisterous and decided manner. At sight of Mr. Utterson, he sprang up from his chair and welcomed him with both hands. The geniality, as was the way of the man, was somewhat theatrical to the eye, but it reposed on genuine feeling. For these two were old friends, old maids, both at school and college, both through both thorough respecters of themselves and of each other, and what does not always follow, men who thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. After a little rambling talk, the lawyer led up to the subject which so disagreeably preoccupied his mind. I suppose, Lanyon, said he, you and I must be the two oldest friends at Henry Jekyll's. I wish the friends were younger, chuckled Dr. Lanyon, but I suppose we are. And what is that? I see it to live of now. Indeed, said Utterson. I thought you had a bond of common interest. We had, was the reply, but it was more than ten years since Henry Jekyll became too fanciful for me. He began to go wrong, wrong in mind, and though, of course, I continue to take an interest in him for old sake's sake, as they say, I see, and I have seen, devilish little of the, of the man, such unscientific boulder dash, added the doctor, flushing suddenly purple, 
one of the strange Damon and Pythias. This little spirit of temper was somewhat of a relief to Mr. Ederson. They have only they only differed on some point of science, he thought, and being a man of no scientific passion, except in the matter of conveyancing, he even added, it is nothing worse than that. He gave his friend <clears throat> a few seconds to recover his composure, and then approached the question he had come to put. Did you ever come across the protégés? One hide, he asked. Hoyd, repeated Lannan. No, never heard of them since my time. That was the amount of information that the lawyer carried back with him to the great dark bed on which he tossed to and fro until the small hours of the morning began to grow large. It was a night of little ease to his toiling mind, toiling in mere darkness and besieged by questions. Six o'clock stuck on the bells of the, mor- of the church that was so conveniently near to Mr. Utterson's dwelling, and still he was digging at the problem. Hitherto it had touched him on the intellectual side alone, but now his imagination also was engaged, or rather enslaved. And as he lay and tossed in the gross darkness of the night and the curtained morning, Mr. Enfield's tale went by before his mind in a scroll of lighted pictures. He would be aware of the great field of lance of a nocturnal city, then of the figure of a man walking swiftly, then of a child running from the doctors, and then these met, and that human juggernaut trod the child down and passed on regardless of her screams. Or else he would see a room in a rich house where his friend lay asleep, dreaming and smiling at his dreams, and the door of that room would be opened, the curtains of the bed plucked apart, the sleeper recalled, and lo, there would stand by his side a figure to whom power was given, and even at that dead hour he must rise and do its bidding. The figure in these two phases haunted the lawyer all night, and if at any time he dozed over, it was but to see it glide more stealthily through sleeping houses, or move the more swiftly and still the more swiftly, even to dizziness, through wider labyrinths of lamp-lighted cities, at every street corner, crush a child and leave her screaming. And still the figure had no face by which he might know it. Even in his dreams, it had no face, or one that baffled him and melted before his eyes. And thus it was that there, that there sprang up and grew apace in the lawyer's mind, a singularly strong, almost an inordinate curiosity to behold the features of the real Mr. Hyde, if he could but once set eyes on him. He thought the mystery would lighten and perhaps roll altogether away, as was the habit of mysterious things when well examined. He might see a reason for his friend's strange preference or bondage, call it which you please, and even for the startling clause of the will. At least it would be a face worth seeing, the face of a man who was without bowels of mercy, a face which had but to show itself to raise up in the mind of the unimpressionable Enfield, a spirit of enduring hatred. From that time forward, Mr. Utterson began to haunt the door in the by-street of shops. In the morning before office hours, at noon when business was plenty and at times scarce, at night under the face of the fogged city moon, by all lights and at all hours of solitude or concourse, the lawyer was to be found on his chosen post. If he be Mr. Hyde, he had thought, I should be Mr. Seek. And at last his patience was rewarded. It was a fine, dry night, frost in the air, the streets as clean as a ballroom floor, the lamps unshaken by any wind, drawing a regular pattern of light and shadow. By ten o'clock, when the shops were closed, the by street was very solitary, and in spite of the low growl of London from all around, very silent. Small sounds carried far. Domestic sounds out of the houses were clearly audible on either side of the roadway, and the rumor of the approach of any passenger preceded him by a long time. Mr. Utterson had been some minutes at his post when he was aware of an odd light footstep drawing near. In the course of his nightly patrols, he had long grown accustomed to the quaint effect with which the footfalls of a single person 
while he was still a great way off, suddenly sprang out distinct from the vast hum and clatter of the city. Yet his attention had never been before so sharply and decisively arrested, and it was with a strong, superstitious provision of success that he withdrew into the entry of the court. The steps drew swiftly nearer and swelled out suddenly louder as they turned the end of the street. The lawyer, looking forth from the entry, could soon see what manner of man he had to deal with. He was small and very very plainly dressed, and the look of him, even at that distance, went somehow strongly against the watcher's inclination. But he made straight for the door, crossing the roadway to save time, and as he came, he drew a key from his pocket, like one approaching home. Mr. Utterson stepped out and touched him on the shoulder as he passed. Mr. Hyde, I think? Mr. Hyde shrank back with a hissing intake of the breath, but his fear was only momentary. And though he did not look the lawyer in the face, he answered coolly enough, That's my name. What do you want? I see you are going in, returned the lawyer. I am an old friend of Dr. Jekyll's, Mr. Edison of Gaunt Street. You must have heard of my name, and meeting you so conveniently, I thought you might admit me. You will not find Dr. Jekyll. He is from home, replied Mr. Hyde, blowing in the key, and then suddenly, but still without looking up, how did you know me? he asked. On your side, said Mr. Edison, will you do me a favor? With pleasure, replied the other. What shall it be? Will you let me see your face? asked the lawyer. Mr. Hyde appeared to hesitate, and then, as if upon some sudden reflection, fronted about with an air of defiance, and the pair stared at each other pretty fixedly for a few seconds. Now I shall know you again, said Mr. Edison. It may be useful. Yes, returned Mr. Hyde. It is as well we have met, and apropos, you should have my address. And he gave a number of a street in Soho. Good God, thought Mr. Ederson, can he too have been thinking of the blue? But he kept his feelings to himself and only grunted an acknowledgement of the address. And now, said the other, how did you know me? By description, was the reply. Whose descriptions? We have common friends, said Mr. Addison. Common friends, echoed Mr. Hyde, a little hoarsely. Who are they? Jekyll, for instance, said the lawyer. He never told you, cried Mr. Hyde with a flush of anger. I did not think you would have lied. Come, said Mr. Addison. That is not fitting language. The other snarled aloud into a savage laugh, and the next moment, with extraordinary quickness, he had unlocked the door and disappeared into the house. The lawyer stood a while when Mr. Hyde had left him, the picture of disquietude. Then he began slowly to mount the street, pausing every step or two and putting his hand to his brow like a man in mental perplexity. The problem he was thus debating as he walked was one of a class that is rarely solved. Mr. Hyde was pale and dwarfish. He gave a, an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness, and he spoke with a husky, whispering, and somewhat broken voice. All these were points against him, but not all of these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Edison regarded him. There must be something else, said the perplexed gentleman. There's something more, if I could find a name for it. God bless me. The man seems wholly human. Something troglodytic, shall we say? Or can it be the old story of Dr. Fell? Or is it the mere radiance of a foul soul that thus transpires through and transfigures its clay continent? The last, I think, for... Oh, my poor old Harry Jekyll, if ever I read Satan's signature upon a face, it is on that of your new friend. 
Around the corner from the by street, there was a square of ancient, handsome houses, now for the most part decayed from their high estate, and let in flats and cha chambers to all sorts and conditions of men, map engravers, architects, shady lawyers, and the agents of obscure enterprises. One house, however, second from the corner, was still occupied entire. And at the door of this, which wore a great air of wealth and comfort, though it was now plunged in darkness except for the fanlight, Mr. Utterson stopped and knocked. A well-dressed elderly servant opened the door. Is Dr. Jekyll at home, Poole? asked the lawyer. I will see, Mr. Utterson, said Poole, admitting the visitor, as he spoke into a large, low-roofed, comfortable hall paved with flags, warmed after the fashion of a country house by a bright, open fire and furnished with costly cabinets of oak. Will you wait here by the fire, sir, or shall I give you a light in the dining room? Here, thank you, said the lawyer, and he drew near and leaned on the tall fender. This hall, in which he was now left alone, was a pet fancy of his friend the doctor's, and Utterson himself was wont to speak of it as the pleasantest room in London. But tonight there was a shudder in his blood. The face of Hyde sat heavy on his memory. He felt, what was, what was rare with him, a nausea and distaste of life, and in the gloom of his spirits, he seemed to read a menace in the flickering of the firelight on the polished cabinets and the uneasy starting of the shadow on the roof. He was ashamed of his relief when Poole presently returned to announce that Dr. Jekyll was gone out. I saw Mr. Hyde go in by the old dissecting room, Paul, he said. Is that right, when Dr. Jekyll is from home? Quite right, Mr. Utterson, sir, replied the servant. Mr. Hyde has a key. Your master seems to repose a great deal of trust in that young man, Paul, resumed the other, musingly. Yes, sir, he does indeed, said, said Paul. We have all orders to obey him. I, I do not think I ever met Mr. Hoyt, said, asked Mr. asked Utterson. Oh dear, no, sir. He never dines here, replied the butler. Indeed, we see very little of him on this side of the house. We, he mostly comes and goes by the laboratory. Well, good night, Paul. Good night, Mr. Utterson and the lawyer set out homeward with a very heavy heart. Poor Harry Jekyll, he thought. My mind misgives me. He is in deep waters. He was wild when he was young, a long while ago, to be sure, but in the law of God, there's no statute of limitations. I must be that the ghost of some old sin, the cancer of some concealed disgrace, punishment coming, very cloudo, years after memory is forgotten and self-love condoned fault. And the lawyer, scared by the thoughts, brooded a while on his own past, groping in all the corners of memory, least by chance some jack-in-the-box of an old iniquity should leap to light there. His past was fairly blameless. Few men could read the rolls of their life with less apprehension. Yet he was humbled to the dust by the many Ill, Ill things he had done, and raised up again into a sober and fearful gratitude by the many he had come so near to doing yet avoided. And then by a return on his former subject, he conceived a spark of hope. This master Hyde, if he was studied, thought he, must have secrets of his own, black secrets by the look of them, secrets compared to which poor Jekyll's worst would be like sunshine. Things cannot continue as they are, it turned me cold to think of this creature stealing like a thief to Harry's bedside. Poor Harry, what awakening and the danger of it. For if this Hyde suspects the existence of the wheel, he may grow impatient to inherit. I, I must put my shoulders to the wheel. If Jekyll will, but let me, he added. If Jekyll will only let me. For once more, he saw before his mind's eye as clear as transparency, the strange clauses of the will.
the end of Chapter 2 of Strange Case with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by Robert Louis Stevenson, recorded by Sandra Lennon. Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Chapter 3. Dr. Jekyll was quite at ease. Recorded by Sandra London, written by Robert Louis Stevenson. A fortnight later, by excellent good fortune, the doctor gave one of his pleasant dinners to some five or six old cronies, all intelligent, reputable men, and all judges of good wine and Mr. Utterson so contrived that he remained behind after the others had departed. This was no new arrangement, but a thing that had befallen many scores of times. Where Utterson was liked, he was liked well. Hosts loved to detain the tri-lawyer when the light-hearted and loose-tongued had already their foot on the threshold. They liked to sit a while in his unobtrusive company, practicing for solitude, sobering their minds, and the man's rich silence after the expense and strain of gaiety. 
to this rule, Dr. Jekyll was no exception. And as he now sat on the opposite side of the fire, a large, well-made, smooth-faced man of 50 with something of a stylish cast, perhaps, but every mark of capacity and kindness. You could see by his looks that he cherished for Mr. Utterson a sincere and warm affection. I've been wanting to speak to you, Jekyll, began the latter. You know that will of yours? A close observer might have gathered that the topic was distasteful, but the doctor carried it off gaily. My poor Utterson, said he, you are unfortunate in such a client. I never saw a man so distressed as you were by my will, unless it were that hidebound pedant Lanyon at what he called my scientific heresies. Oh, I know he's a good fellow. You needn't frown. An excellent fellow, and I always mean to see more of him. But a hidebound pedant for all that, an ignorant, blatant pedant, I was never more disappointed in any man than Lanyon. You know, I never approved of it, pursued Utterson, ruthlessly disregarding the fresh topic. My will? Yes, certainly, I know that, said the doctor, a trifle sharply. You've told me so? Well, I tell you so again, continued the lawyer. I've been learning something of young Hyde. The large, handsome face of Dr. Jekyll grew pale to the very lips, and there came a blackness about his eyes. I do not care to hear any more, said he. This is a matter I thought we'd agreed to drop. What I heard was abominable, said Utterson. You can make no change. You do not understand my position, returned the doctor, with a certain incoherency of manner. I am painfully situated, Utterson. My position is a very strange, a very strange one. It's it is one of those affairs that cannot be mended by talking. Jacob, said Utterson, you know me. I'm a man to be trusted. Make a clean breast of this in confidence, and I'm making no doubt I can get you out of it. My good Utterson, said the doctor, this is very good of you. This is downright good of you, and I cannot find words to take you in. I believe you fully. I would trust you before any man alive. I, before myself, if I could make the choice. But indeed, it isn't what you fancy. It is not as bad as that. And just to put your good heart at rest, I will tell you one thing. The moment I choose, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde. I give you my hand upon that. And I thank you again and again. And I will just add one little word. Utterson, that I'm sure you'll take in good part. This is a private matter, and I beg of you to let it sleep. Utterson reflected a little, looking in the fire. I have no doubt you're perfectly right, he said at last, getting to his feet. Well, but since we've touched upon this business, and for the last time, I hope, continued the doctor, there's one point I should like you to understand. I have a, really a very great interest in Paul Hyde. I know you've seen him. He told me so. And I fear he was rude, but I do sincerely take a great, a very great interest in that young man. And if I'm taken away, Utterson, I wish you to promise me that you would bear with him and get his rights for him. I think you would if you knew all, and it would be a weight off my mind if you would promise. I can't pretend that I shall ever like him, said the lawyer. I don't ask that, pleaded Jekyll, laying his hand upon the other's arm. I only ask for justice. I only ask you to help him for my sake when I'm no longer here. Ederson heaved an irrepressible sigh. Well, said he, I promise.
suis dans la vie comme dans mes rêves Et quand je crève, je suis le cri De qui me croit ou qui me prie Je suis comme ça dans la vie Je renie jusqu'à mon sang Et je ne sens plus qui je suis Il n'y a plus d'innocent J'aimerais dire que je sais ma route Et que je ne doute que quand j'ai bu Mais vu que je suis à nu Plus personne avec qui Ruminer mes envies et vivre sans avoir l'air J'ai comme un courant d'air Derrière la vie mon frère Pleure de me voir si triste Et je me laisse en survent mon lit Je n'ai pas dormi aussi mal que depuis la nuit Où j'avais rêvé avoir tué de son foin un homme Femme avec une âme que j'avais trouvée là sur le sol Mes jours se suivent et ne se ressemblent que par leurs bêtises Je n'attise pas le feu mais je veux qu'on me dise Pourquoi la vie est une pute Pourquoi veut-elle qu'on l'écoute Pour nous pousser vers la chute avec l'amour dans l'écoute Je ne sais pas mais j'aimerais être un peu plus forte Pour me battre contre ceux qui nous préféreraient morts Et voilà les amis qui se rangent à la vie bourgeoise Je dérange les ardoises et je casse les armoires J'ai pris le métro et j'ai vu la peur dans leurs yeux Ils ne fuient plus, ils se flippent tous Et les titres pour celui qu'on tue Ils ne regardent plus que leur smartphone